Hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. My best friend and partner in rap, Paul, noticed a classified ad in the newspaper placed by a former DJ who was selling his entire record collection. So we saved up as much money as we could shoveling snow and bagging groceries, and we took the bus to meet DJ Eddie. DJ Eddie had entire rooms in his cramped apartment stacked with 12 inches, a lot of disco and soul, but also a ton of hip-hop. As Eddie promised to give us a great deal on whatever records we wanted, Paul and I feverishly rummaged through the imposing collection, scooping up 12-inch singles by a trap called Quest, EPMD, Gangstar, Ultramagnetic MCs, and Eric B. and Rakim. We were mostly on the hunt for singles with instrumental tracks on the B-sides that we could rap over. As Paul and I engaged in small talk with DJ Eddie, he mentioned that he made beats. We told him about our group, Rebellious Knowledge. Eddie asked us to rap for him. We performed a few verses, and Eddie seemed impressed. If you guys ever want to go to the studio, I'll produce a track for you, said Eddie. How much do you charge, asked Paul, ever practical. Oh, not much. Probably a hundred bucks for a finished, mixed track, said Eddie. He may as well have told us it had cost a million dollars. Still, the seed was sown, and an unmistakable feeling of mission creep began to stir. We told DJ Eddie we would be in touch. Paul and I raised a good amount of money shoveling snow for neighbors, and my parents agreed to lend us the remainder of the cash we needed to cover our studio costs. We joined DJ Eddie at his professional recording studio to record what we imagined would be the debut Rebellious Knowledge single, a song about the government's covert role in drug trafficking. My memory of the actual recording process is a blur of patch cables and rack-mounted gear and microphone pop screens, but Paul and I eventually wrapped our verses to DJ Eddie's satisfaction, and we retired to the control room to listen back to what we'd done. Though we tried as hard as we could to play it cool, Hearing our voices over the studio monitors was a thrill. We sounded legit. The only thing the still-untitled song lacked was a hook for the chorus. Eddie had with him a white-label 12-inch called Acapella Anonymous Volume 2, a gray-market DJ tool featuring vocal samples lifted without permission from various records. We collectively disqualified the first several brief tracks of disembodied voices and isolated bits before deciding on one titled Mind Games, by a group called Quest, which contained a sample of a woman's voice very assertively speaking the words, No More Mind Games. We decided that this would be the perfect hook and title for our song about the FBI's nefarious role in inventing the crack epidemic. My mom retrieved us from the studio, and we played the tape over and over again in the car stereo during the drive home. Though Paul was already beginning to express some misgivings about our performance, wishing we'd done this or that differently, I thought it sounded excellent. Oh, I can definitely hear this getting played on the radio, said my mom. The next one will be better, Paul assured her. Staten Island inexplicably didn't really produce any famous rappers until the Wu-Tang Clan came along and it's impossible to overstate the influence of the Wu on hip-hop, and on Staten Island in general. Until this unique and influential crew came along, 
Our forgotten borough was defined mostly by its most negative qualities. Typically, native-born Staten Islanders of the post-Verrazano Bridge era, who went on to any sort of public renown, like Emilio Estevez, Christina Aguilera, and the New York Dolls David Johansson, they left as soon as they could. But very suddenly, the influence of Wu-Tang was everywhere, almost single-handedly legitimizing Staten Island, now rechristened Shaolin by the Wu and their disciples, in the rap community and beyond. As I said, the rise of the Wu did more than merely put Staten Island on the hip-hop map. It gave the borough itself a new and honorable claim to fame that extended far beyond fans of rap music. You gotta remember, prior to Wu-Tang, the place where I grew up was known, if it was known at all, for hosting a landfill that could be seen, according to legend, from space, and for being populated with violent, tire-iron-wielding guidos and members of criminal syndicates. The Wu single-handedly changed not only the perception of Staten Island, but its very reality. To this day, I can go anywhere in the world, and when someone asks me where I'm from, I can say, Staten Island, and they will almost always respond by saying, Ah, oh, Wu-Tang, Method Man, Shaolin, and begin spitting their favorite ODB verse. I have bonded over this with punk rockers in Brussels, house DJs in Pisa, and noise dudes in Helsinki. Still, this worldwide acclaim was a few years away. For now, the Wu-Tang was, for the most part, our own little secret. Around this time, marijuana was becoming very ubiquitous in the hip-hop scene, thanks in no small part to the endorsement of Wu-Tang Clan, along with their West Coast counterparts Cypress Hill and Dr. Dre the latter of whom once famously professed in a rap to shunning weed for fear of getting brain damage. Although weed had occasionally been present in rap circles prior to this period, it was mostly kept under wraps, as opposed to the flagrant pot-smoking commonly associated with hippies and metalheads since time immemorial. Now, even the squarest of posers, herbs, and wannabes at our school were tucking Philly blunts into their Carhartt beanies and wearing marijuana leaf pendants around their necks. It was not uncommon to walk onto the Staten Island Ferry and step into a small pile of white owl tobacco from someone's recently evacuated blunt. I remained a loyal listener to Hot 97's Mic Check Show, where budding MCs bravely tested their skills on the air. Being privy to the successes and failures of other rappers provided invaluable tutelage for the study of flow, lyrics, and voice projection. After auditing the program for several months, I came to the conclusion that I was better than a lot of the MCs who called into the show, so I decided at last to participate. I asked my parents, who were in the kitchen, to remain off the phone line so that I could make an important call, but I didn't elaborate beyond that. I also didn't tell any of my friends, despite the fact that many of them were, like me, regular listeners to the show. See, I figured if I caved under pressure and choked on the air, I didn't want anyone I knew to be listening when it happened. I prepared a brief 16-bar verse. Mike Check Show hosts The Furious Five tended to hang up on callers who ran too long. By now my rap moniker was Son of Sam, alternately SOS. I called and nervously waited my turn. Then, following a brief introduction, delivered my verse. Want to hear it? <laughs> <laughs> 
I need the snap, so the snaps I'm taking at the end of the day. I got more knots than a Jamaican. No such thing as a diss law, so listen to this part. I'll leave them all stranded like it's tar. Style will shock hard rocks like the third rail. Suckers act up once I get tossed out like junk mail. Mad ideas, yes, I got an ill plan. To put crabs out of work like the milkman. Stop some ooboos, rob the tip, leaving lipstick and still falling short like books quick. Hey, yo, that's it. What life I gotta go? Respect to 97 and the mic check show. Oh, man. That is my brother. Your Shaolin style was quite effective. Very proud moment. Hanging up the phone, I had the distinct feeling that I was vibrating. The mic check show appearance boosted my confidence, and I was beginning to join ciphers at school. For those who don't know, a cipher is an impromptu huddle in which MCs compete, battle, and trade verses. These ciphers usually occurred in the hallways, parking lots, or nearby woods where the less uh, academically inclined members of the student body often found themselves in lieu of class, including yours truly. I would occasionally convince Paul, who was not especially prone to skipping class, to join in. As the lone white kids, we may have presented something of a novelty, but we encountered very little resistance from any of the school's rapping elite. I've always been wary of the cliché about music being a universal language, I mean, try ordering food in a foreign country and music sometime. But the bond these ad hoc groups shared over hip-hop seemed to erase any cultural differences. No one seemed to care that we lived on the more suburban South Shore. All that mattered was that we could really rhyme and hold our own. Though our rap crew was an informal one, it had its regulars who seemed to be present at every hallway summit. There was Justino, the football quarterback, who seemed to take a special interest in me. Justino was a terrific lyricist. There was local celebrity Baby Pa, who was affiliated with Wu-Tang and rapped alongside the mythical King Just, who did not attend our school, but who we knew by reputation. King Just was rumored to have gotten a record deal, and Baby Pa was to feature on his upcoming single. Then there was Keem, who was rumored to be a blood relative of the Wu-Tang clan's Raekwon the Chef, though it was considered poor taste to talk about it. Keem's respect was hard-earned. He projected an aura of implacability, was the only member of the crew who seemed to look at me and Paul askance. Keem's skepticism was subtle, but I sensed that I had yet to prove myself to him. He and I had a few classes together, and we would rap at each other in the hallways between classes. I would deliver my latest verse, and he'd fire back, decimating me with something much better. He'd end with a smugly satisfied look and shuffle off cackling. One day, I finally rapped a verse that impressed Keem. I could tell it was a good verse because when I finished, the typically poker-faced Keem was unable to conceal a smile. I think the line that won him over was, I come correct and eject like a tech, leave an MC boneless like lesbian sex. I'm not even going to front, Keem said, grinning. That was dope. He threw me a pound and quickly walked away without another word. Throughout my many years of making records, performing, and writing, I've been grateful to receive some very generous praise from critics, heroes, and tastemakers and the like, but the respect Keem begrudgingly bestowed upon me that day remains one of my most memorable and affirming endorsements. I guess I felt like I really earned it. Paul and I began visiting the homes of some of our new friends, most of whom lived on the North Shore, taking the bus directly from school to poverty-stricken areas like West Brighton and Stapleton. Though other white rappers began popping up back home in Great Kills and Eltingville, we felt more at home in these foreign and reputedly hostile neighborhoods than in our own, where it was not uncommon to have to duck a flying Yoohoo bottle hurled from a car full of guidos driving past and hurling insults at us. 
I realize that this is anecdotal, but it's just my experience. I've never been beat up in a so-called bad neighborhood. I cannot say the same for the suburbs. At all. But we'll get to that later. Back home, Paul and I formed a group with some of what we felt were the better new rappers in our neighborhood. The group was called PNT, an acronym for Public Nuisance Troop. It was only years later that Paul and I realized how silly and non-threatening a name it was. Public Enemy? Now, that sounded serious. Public Nuisance? Sounds like a group you scare off with a broom. Anyway, the group would regularly cluster together in the basement and record our songs. Our tracks were structured, like most rap songs at the time, like bebop tunes, only instead of having a head that bookended the solos between, we would rap our individual verses between shouted, perfunctory choruses. Somehow we were still ignorant of the concept of a mic stand, despite Paul and I having now been to an actual recording studio, so we relied on the tried-and-true method of crouching together in a circle on the carpet and rapping into a Reebok sneaker that held erect a karaoke microphone. If someone messed up, we had to start all over again from the top. I almost always rapped last because I never messed up. I'm not trying to brag, I just never messed up. It was a good and spirited group and we had a lot of fun. For many of the other suddenly ubiquitous white rappers in our neighborhood, however, rapping was merely ancillary to various criminal activities. As with graffiti, rapping soon became, for many, just another excuse to brawl. One summer day, a rap battle broke out between our older and well-connected friend Leaf and a member of a rival rap crew who went by the graffiti nom de plume Pharaoh. It was immediately clear that Leaf was getting the better of Pharaoh, who was beginning to fume. Perhaps inevitably, there came an aggressive shove, which led to a punch, and soon the rap battle had been abandoned in favor of an old-fashioned street fight. Mirroring the rap battle, Leaf was again getting the better of the other boy in the fight who weathered a few hard if sloppy jabs to the face. Fearing a humiliating defeat in front of his boys, Pharaoh took a few steps backward, produced a large wrench from his pocket, and began brandishing it wildly. Paul and I eyed each other knowingly and began backing away, but perhaps frozen in fear, we didn't scurry as some of the other boys in our crew did. The rumble continued, with Leaf ducking the wrench, continuing to scrap. Just then a mysterious Honda pulled up, a door opened, and Leaf was whisked away to safety. The driver of the car was our friend Antonio, who had run to his car at the first sight of Pharaoh's wrench. Pharaoh hurled the wrench at the retreating car, as some of the other boys in his crew fruitlessly gave chase. I looked around to grimly discover that only Paul and I remained, the last two left-for-dead members of what this much larger group of boys mistakenly viewed as an adversarial gang. Pharaoh fixed his gaze upon us, his chest puffed out like a gorilla, heaving with adrenaline, his face red from the punches Leaf had landed before his swift and cowardly escape. Abandoned by our friends and suddenly vulnerable, Paul and I were trapped. I think you's better leave, said one of the other boys, mercifully. All right, man, said Paul, trying not to sound too relieved. We turned and walked away as fast as we could without running. Now, fights like these were a regular occurrence. If for some reason you wanted to witness an amateur street brawl, you could usually find one in progress on any given night at Randazzo's. A small convenience store off Amboy Road only four blocks from my parents' house, Randazzo's parking lot was the hangout of the infamous Hood Squad, who I told you about in a previous episode. It was a place to be pointedly avoided, especially at night, 
when the common sight of menacing-looking white boys in oversized hoods drinking 40s and smoking blunts could be mistaken for the cast of a rap video. Even Halloween was used as an excuse to wage war. While younger kids still engaged in the perennial act of trick-or-treating, anyone over the age of 12 was expected to go bombing, which meant roaming the neighborhood and attacking other random groups of teenagers, as well as passing city buses with shaving cream and eggs. Now this was mostly innocent fun, until the introduction of a particularly menacing new weapon known as the Nair Bomb. The Nair Bomb was an egg coated in hair removal lotion. It was not uncommon to show up at school after the holiday to find several unfortunate victims walking the halls with small patches of exposed scalp from where they'd been creamed in the head with one of these devastating modified projectiles. I'll say I never made or threw a Nair Bomb and luckily was never hit with one. The threat of random violence in the neighborhood was constant. Twice I was jumped for sport when I had been cavalier enough to walk by myself through Annadale, possibly mistaken for a member of the rival neighborhood's hood squad. Other beatings took the form of what one might call muggings, in which I was hurt just badly enough to assure that I would not fight back while I was being liberated of my cash, bus pass, or hat. These random attacks have resulted in some residual present-day trauma for me. No matter how safe a given neighborhood may seem, if I'm walking and I hear a runner approaching from behind, I stop and move aside to let them pass. The sound of quick, steadily advancing footsteps at my back triggers in me a defense mechanism, and because of this, I harbor to this day what I will concede is an irrational prejudice against urban joggers. Now the thing you learn about physical confrontations after observing and maybe even participating in a few is that it's never the Hollywood action sequence scene you expect it will be. I've witnessed my share of street fights, probably not as many as, say, Harley Flanagan, but almost definitely more than Michael Stipe. And all of them, even the ones with a decisive victor, left me feeling embarrassed for everyone involved, winner, loser, and spectators alike. The sound of a well-landed punch against someone's temple or into the bridge of someone's nose never actually sounds like the crack of balls on a billiard table. It almost always sounds like a slap, a hollow, ugly, and frightening sound. Fighting is a major bummer. I remember being really surprised when I started traveling around the country years later, and I met people who'd never witnessed, let alone been in, a real fight. All that said, I don't regret a single punch I've ever thrown, only a few that I didn't, like when Mikey Arcaris compared the boo to sloth from the Goonies. Anyway, because of the threat of needless random violence, it was advantageous to have friends in high places. My first serious girlfriend was a girl named Jennifer, and we hung out almost every day. Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, John Rossi, was a member of a rival crew, which ludicrously meant only that he happened to live in a different neighborhood only 10 or 15 blocks away. Now, Rossi had spread the word that he was looking to do me harm. One day, Paul, Jennifer, and I were in the basement as usual when we got a call from a mutual friend that Rossi and his friends were on their way over to my house to drag me outside, along with anyone else who happened to be there, and kick my ass. I made the mistake of relaying this information to Paul, who panicked and began scouring the basement for potential weapons. Unsure of what to do, I called Leaf, explaining what was about to go down. Now, I had been raised to fight my own battles, but I knew John Rossi wasn't coming alone, so why couldn't I too level the playing field by securing some reinforcements? Okay, you guys go to the corner and wait for them, said Leaf, and I'll be there in a few minutes. I relayed Leaf's instructions to a skeptical Paul, who nevertheless agreed to the plan. 
like selfless sacrificial heroes off to face down a posse in some Hollywood western. Paul and I bravely instructed Jennifer to remain in the basement where she'd be safe. We'd handle it. We were scared shitless. There are moments in your life that retrospectively feel cinematic, and this is one of them. Paul and I stood on the corner of Pacific Avenue and Sycamore Street for just a few minutes, when from a distance, we spied a fleet of fast-approaching bicycles heading in our direction. Soon I was able to identify John Rossi, who was brandishing a bike lock on a long chain. Three henchmen flanked him on all sides. Just then, Leaf materialized as if in a magic trick, in the nick of time, with his foil Lorenzo in tow. Leaf and Lorenzo were feared graffiti riders with ties to several gangs. Lorenzo was the first kid our age I knew who actually carried a Glock. Luckily, they were also my friends. By the time John Rossi and his gang spotted Lorenzo and Leaf, it was too late for them to retreat. Leaf made a grab for Rossi's bike handles, blocking his path. What you doing? Leaf demanded of Rossi. The color had left Rossi's face and fear crept across his eyes. As he stuttered and stammered, trying to buy time, Leaf cracked him hard across the face. Meanwhile, Lorenzo was busy making quick work of Rossi's three compatriots, robbing them and then hurling their bikes into the street. Now, make no mistake, though Leaf and Lorenzo were my pals and were likely happy to help a friend in need or whatever, their perfectly executed ambush was motivated less by loyalty or friendship than by bloodlust. I mean, these were the kind of guys who just liked to fight. They easily deflected this gang of would-be attackers who left sheepish, scared, and humiliated and relieved of their possessions. Now, the cost of this assistance was that Paul and I would now have to spend the afternoon with Leaf and Lorenzo. We retired to the basement, where Leaf bragged to Lorenzo about my karaoke machine and the recordings Paul and I made. Oh, these dudes can rap, Leaf assured him. Oh, y'all like rap? asked Lorenzo. I'll show you some rap. At this, he rifled through his Jansport and produced from a small mountain of Krylon cans a VHS tape. The video is a taping of the regional television program Uptown Comedy Club a weekly stand-up and variety show taped at the famed Apollo Theater on 125th Street that often featured rappers as musical acts. The episode featured Wu-Tang Clan performing Protect Your Neck. It's still on YouTube, you should definitely check it out. Paul and I had already heard the song on one of the radio shows we listened to, and we saw the hilariously low-budget video on Video Music Box, and we loved it instantly. But seeing the song performed live instantly transformed us into lifelong fans. It was unlike any other hip-hop performance we'd seen. The clan was raw, but every member of the group had an unmistakable charisma. Clearly, they were something special. A leather-jacketed method man mysteriously spent the first minute of the song with his back to the crowd, building suspense as he bobbed to the music and waited his turn. Then, immediately following Raekwon the chef's verse, method man at last sprung around dramatically and began to rap, and every young woman in the crowd screamed. It was definitely a rock star move, but it was a very effective one. Ooh, who's the hottie? asked Jennifer, her eyes fixed on the charismatic, gravel-voiced MC. Clearly, this was going to be big. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please spread the word. I want to thank everyone who's listened, subscribed, or donated so far. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. I'm offering a lot of cool stuff on Patreon, so check it out and see if you'd like to become a patron. On the next episode, oh, there's a lot in the next episode. I discover hardcore punk and techno, rave till dawn, drop out of school, 
and get fired from Taco Bell. All that and more on episode 15. Till then, take it easy. This is The Toast Zone.